0: Good afternoon everyone. Welcome to Read Aloud. We've got a great program this week um, featuring Ebony Francis and Deidre Herring and I'm going to let them introduce their material Um, and I hope you enjoy the slideshow. There's coffee and tea in the back if you'd like anything and um,
1: otherwise just relax and enjoy the readings. Thanks for coming. So Ebony and I will be uh, Kind of going back and forth. I'm going to be reading from a selection called Hair Story Untangling the Roots of Black Hair in America, and it's by Ayana D. Byrd and Lori L. Tharps.
0: I'll be reading from Tenderheaded, a comb bending collection of hair stories, edited by Juliet Harris and Pamela Johnson.
1: So, black hair and bondage, 1400 through 1899. The story starts in Africa. The story of black people's hair begins where everything began, in Africa. Not surprisingly, the birthplace of both astronomy and alchemy also give rise to a people in perfect harmony with their environment. Indeed, the dense spiraling curls of African hair demonstrate evolutionary genius. Like natural air conditioning, This frizzy, kinky hair insulates the head from the brutal intensity of the sun's rays. Of course there is not one single type of African hair, just as there is not one single type of African. The variety of hair textures from Western Africa alone ranges from the deep ebony, kinky curls of the mandingos to the loosely curled, flowing locks of the Ashanti. The one constant Africans share when it comes to hair is a social and cultural significance intrinsic to each beautiful strand. In the 15th century, hair functioned as a carrier of messages in most West African societies. The citizens of these societies, including the Wolof, the Mundi, the Mundingo, and Yoruba were the people who filled the slave ships that sailed to the New World. Within these cultures, hair was an integral part of a complex language system. Ever since African civilizations bloomed, hairstyles have been used to indicate a person's marital status, age, religion, ethnic identity, wealth, and rank within the community. In some cultures, a person's surname could be ascertained simply by examining the hair because each clan had its own unique hairstyle. The hairstyle also served as an indicator of a person's geographic origin.
0: This is a little folk tale called Why Colored Folks Have Nappy Hair. In the beginning, the story goes, nobody had hair. So God called everybody together to beautify them and hand out the hair. When the call came that the hair was ready, black folks were having a big barbecue that they wanted to finish. That's really funny to me. <laughs> the other races came running, put the hair on, and smoothed it down. And so they have smooth hair. Then they issued a second call to the colored people. But the only hair left that was left was the trampled hair on the ground. And so the colored people got stuck with the kinky hair. Um, Next, I'm going to go into brief little definitions about good hair and bad hair. Good hair. Back in the day, and some still believe, a close approximation of Caucasian hair. The texture is generally wavy and silky soft to the touch. Of course, the length is long or the hair has the potential to be long. Some folks used to call it nearer my God to thee hair. (laughs) Bad hair, tightly coiled, coarse hair that is thought to be hard to manage and is generally short. Also known as nappy hair, tight hair, and mailman hair, as in every knot's got its own root.
1: Because a person's spirit supposedly nestled in the hair, the hairdresser always held a special place in community life. The hairdresser was often considered the most trustworthy individual in society. The complicated and time-consuming task of hair grooming including, included washing, combing, oiling, braiding, and twisting or decorating the hair with any number of adornments, including cloth, beads, and shells. The process could last several hours, sometimes several days. Often the only tools the hairdresser used were a hand-carved wooden comb, specifically designed with long teeth and rounded tips to remove tangles and knots without causing excess pain. Palm oil and years of creative know-how. In some cultures, the hair was groomed by a family member because only a relative could be trusted with such an important task. In the Yoruba tradition, all women were taught how to braid, but any young girl who showed, talented, who showed talent in the, the art of hairdressing was encouraged to become a master, assuming responsibility for the entire community's coiffures. Before a master died, she would pass on her box of ha- hairdressing tools to a successor within the family during a sacred ceremony. This is a poem called The Kink That Winked,
0: by Cynthia Colbert. A story of how a simple trip to the ladies' room to primp powder and perfume, giving it my all, almost turned into a brawl. There it sat, that one nappy, hap-hap-happy nap, like it's saying, look at me. I think it may have even winked, that kink beside the sink. Then suddenly blonde squeals reel and peel rolling over over and over the stalls. Ew, look, a pubic hair. Oh no they didn't. <laughs> I blinked, teetering on the brink, and again I swear the kink winked. Now I'm changing the venue of this here menu, pondered the fine, saw the headline, pictures of me after the crime. A number rests on my chest, me facing west, local writer, quite a fighter. Move to the bowl, eyes, hips roll like jelly, ready to jam, bam, move over, ma'am. Well no time like the present, me so pleasant, and they like peasants put in their places, stupid looks on their faces. As I began to comb my nappy, hap, hap, happy naps, one fell, two fell, then three beside the sink, and I
1: think they may have even winked. So, for nearly 400 years, an estimated 20 million men, women, and children were forcibly removed from their homes and dragged in chains to the slave markets on that infamous coast that stretched for 3,000 miles from Senegal to Angola. The captives were then sold to European and Arabian slave traders. Most of the slaves were then sold to European and Arabian slave traders. Most of the slaves were between the ages of 10 and 24, and the majority of them hailed from Western and West Central Africa. The citizens of countries such as Senegal, Gambia, Sierra Leone, Ghana, and Nigeria were highly sought after because of their specialized skills in agriculture, pottery, jewelry making, cotton weaving, and woodworking. One of the first things the slave traders did to their new cargo was shave their heads if they had not already been shorn by their captors. The highest indignity, wrote Ayubo Suleman Diallo, a member of a prominent West African family who was kidnapped and forced into slavery, was when his Mandingo assailant shaved his head and beard to make him appear as if he were a prisoner taken in war. Tenderheaded
0: or Rejecting the Legacy of Being Able to Take It by Meg Henson Scales The question You tenderheaded reaches from Blackberry depths to millennia of recalcitrant B2Bs It is the nomenclature of dark feminine introductions that question before the hair fixing rituals commence before the immolation and the ambush this naming of things Are you tender-headed?
1: The primary need for slaves in British North America was to work on the massive plantations in the mid-Atlantic and southern states. The slaves were expected to work in fields under a grueling sun for 12 to 15 hours a day, seven days a week. The single meal of the day might consist of dry cornbread smeared with pork grease and some other type of uh, overcooked vegetable. Punishments for insolence, slowing down, or rebellion included whipping with the catanine tails, sadistic torture, and amputations of digits and limbs. Given these inhumane, unhealthy conditions, the Africans had neither the time nor the inclination to care much about their appearance, including their hair. So, moreover, treasured African combs were nowhere to be found in the New World. So the once long, thick, and healthy tresses of both women and men. Became tangled and matted. Out of depression or desperation for a tool to replace the African combs, the slaves began using a sheep fleece carding tool to untangle their hair. Interestingly, there there appears to be no record of slaves making new combs specifically designed for their kinky hair. We carded our hair because we never had no combs, but the cards they worked better. Recalled former slave. Jane Morgan in an interview with a government worker from the Work Projects Administration. We used the cards to card wool with with also, and we just wet our hair and then we card it. The cards had wooden handles and strong steel wire teeth, Morgan recalled. Scalp diseases like ringworm became pervasive among the slave population as did lice infestations. When an outbreak of of ringworm occurred, Slaves commonly tagged a rag around their heads, uh, tied a rag around their heads to cover the unsightly scabs left by afflictions. And a worse inf- infection would then ensue, creating a vicious cycle of hair problems, breakage, and patchy baldness. Whereas in Africa, women would spend hours a day grooming their hair and arranging in traditional styles, on the plantations, they used scarves or kerchiefs fashioned from coarse fabric scraps provided by their stingy masters to keep their hair well hidden. Partly as protection from the scorching sun and hovering flies, and partly out of shame for the now unsightly hair. The head rag became ubiquitous in slave culture.
0: This is called Hair Revolution by Cynthia Colbert. It's kind of funny because every time I see her name, I want to say Colbert, like Stephen, but anyway. I was eight, and every two weeks took the bus to Miss Jerry Pearl, who did hair in her basement. Smell of burnt hair and grease. Girl, your hair sure is nappy and dirty this time. What have you been into? Running around with frizz and naps. What would folks think? Why, they would think I was just a kid, having all the fun I could get my hands on, although it would have been nice to have hair like my friend Dixie, who sat next to me at school. Hers was all nice and shiny and long and blonde. I was 14 and wore my psychedelic lime green bell bottoms like a badge of honor, but something was missing. I pleaded, Mama, please let me wear an afro. Girl, why would anyone want to wear that mess? I'll never know. Running around looking all wild. What would folks think? Why, they would think I was black, beautiful, and proud like my girl Nikki G. Talking about men in their tight, tight pants and big afros. And maybe, just maybe, they would know that I was about black power on the order of Eldridge and Stokely or Huey. When mama finally said, okay, honey, I had me an afro that would have made Angela Davis proud. Painstakingly braided every night, picked, shaped, and padded. I was 16, and Revlon was calling my name. Had to get a perm and Farrah Fawcett blonde streaks. Then later, Aretha reddish brown. While others tried alcohol and weed, I experimented with my hair. Why would you want to perm your hair? You just want to be like the white girls. I heard Jerry Lynn Barnes' hair fell out in patches because of that stuff. No boy wants a bald-headed girl. What would they think? Maybe they would think I was beautiful with my shiny, silky hair, parted down the middle and feathered to the back, with just a few blonde streaks around my face. Or maybe they would show me some respect. If it was a read the red maybe they wouldn't notice how big my butt was getting or the breakouts on my face. I'm just trying to find me. I was 20, bound by the box that had promised shiny, silky, even sexy hair. Burning my scalp, my ears, my hair, a delicious agony to hair that's mine and his. Isn't it time to do something to your hair? getting a little nappy around the edges, want my wife to look good when we go out, what would people think? Why, they would think that I was a young housewife and mother, loving and nurturing, whose kids and her man were well cared for. I may be your wife, but these edges are mine. Trust me, I know when my hair needs to be done, functional when it needs to be, sleek and sexy when I need it to be, I can cook up the bacon, fry it up in the pan, and never, never let you forget, well, you know the rest. There goes 30, now here comes 40, and during this, this what? One and a half hour ordeal, at least twice a week. Shampoo, blow dry, curling iron. Don't they know that a single working mom wants hair that looks good, but is easy to take care of? Fashion with ease. I'm not that hard to please. Wash and wear hair, but do I dare? You work in an office. A nice relaxed bob is the corporate look and it's fairly easy to care for. If you wore those braids, locks, afro, select one, to work, why, what would they think? They would probably find it fascinating as they all seem to think our hair is. Can I touch it? It doesn't look as soft doesn't look as if it would be so soft. How do you do that? You can do so much with your hair. And the stares and questions would end once the novelty wore off. What would they think? Who
1: cares? So after two centuries in bondage, a unique homegrown system of black hair care had developed. Over the years, the goal of grooming the hair had morphed from the elaborate and symbolic designs of Africa into an imitation of white styles adapted to black kinks and curls. Both women and men were interested in straightening their hair because straight European hair had held up as the beauty, as the beauty ideal. So there existed neither a public nor a private forum where black hair was celebrated in America. And without the influx of Americans to the slave population, it was difficult for blacks born and raised in captivity to take pride in their kinky locks. Without the combs, herbal ointments, palm oil used in Africa for hairdressing, the slaves were forced to use common Western household products and, equipments, and equipment to achieve certain styles. Instead of palm oil, the slaves took to using oil-based products like bacon grease and butter to condition and soften the hair, prepare it for straightening and make it shine. Cornmeal and kerosene were used as scalp cleaners and coffee became a natural dye for women. Several methods of straightening the hair were concocted by ingenious blacks who were sh- who were short on commercial products. So men would slick would slick axle grease meant for wagon wheels over their hair for a combination dye job and straightener. Women would slather their hair with butter, bacon fat, or goose grease and then use butter knife, a butter knife heated in a can over a fire as a, cr- a crude curling iron, iron. Sometimes a piece of cloth warmed over a flame would be pulled across the head and worn for a short while to stretch the curls out. Women also wrapped their hair in strings, strips of nylon, cotton, or eel skin to decrease the kink and leave looser curls. Some slave mothers took to wrapping their children's hair to start training it to grow and training it to straight as early as infancy. infancy. The most mordant device used to straighten the hair was lye, mixed with potatoes to decrease its caustic nature. This creamy concoction was smeared on the hair and the lye would straighten the curls. Unfortunately, it could also eat the skin right off a person's head. So good and bad hair, the quest for straight hair was often a torturous obsession for the slaves, but it was not just about conforming to the prevailing fashions of the day. Straight hair translated to economic opportunity and social advantage. Because many of the more than 100,000 free blacks in 19th-century America were the mulatto offspring of the first African arrivals and their European companions, lighter skin and loosely curled hair would often signify free status. In fact, many light-complexed slaves tried to pass themselves off as free, hoping the European features would be enough to convince bounty hunters that they belonged to that privileged. That privileged class.
0: Tenderheaded by Nikki Finney. I am and have been since they used to pass me around by my three mule braids like a bowl of briar berries, no one wanted to touch, but everyone wanted to see. You take her. Oh, no, ma'am. I had her last time, remember? Nobody, nobody wanted to straighten this hair, and I didn't want nobody to. Cotton, mud brown, and continent thick, they made bets on what color my scalp was and how long it would take to get there, then would circle all around, hover over the swivel chair just to know who had won and who had lost. Easily, it was a day's travel from the first to the last sizzling stroke. Afterward, whoever lost politely walked over and regretfully informed the rest of her waiting customers she was unavailable for the rest of the day. While in the back room already, she was soaking her fingers in a bowl of something sudsy and smooth, readying them for their ordeal, and for the next four hours, I was hers. By large, unsympathetic, twisting fingers, she would take me unmercif- unmercifully From chair to sink, to chair to dryer, back to chair, and then finally lead me up front near the window, just under the Clyburn's Beauty Shop sign, somewhere safe and far away from those hands, where my scarlet and throbbing head, where my scorched ears could cool better. Behind me, I could hear her back with her girls now, her fingers returned to that suzzy bowl, waiting, I suppose, for the color and the feeling to return. I could hear her, I could hear them all good, talking and teasing about how the Lord must have mixed me up with somebody else, maybe even two or three people, giving me all that hair and tender-headed, too. Saying how some poor soul out on the street, right now, walking around with a big old buffalo brush and just a finger snap of hair, Steady pleading their mama or maybe even an auntie for some squatting time inside that sacred place of places and once inside those gaping legs how eyes would close while hands scratched and brushed to high heaven how they would sit so perfectly still while their scalp got raked and planted making sounds like they never wanted it to stop still not knowing they so mismatched not knowing maybe I got some of what belongs to them. Just like them ladies don't know how good I hear their laughter ringing off the glass that my head has made into my cooling board. Just like they don't know how hard I'm trying not to hear them, how hard I'm steady peeping and looking outside and longing for to get away, right away, inside the safety of that 69 Buick and back beside the generous giver of this tender-headed crown.
1: So now there's no excuse for nappy. 1900-1964. In 1901, Sarah McWilliams of 34 was a widowed single mother with no formal education, supporting a daughter in college on the income she made washing other people's clothes. Nine years later, the Guinness Book of World Records hailed this very same woman as the first self-made female Uh, female American millionaire. With inspiration gleaned from a fanciful dream, McWilliams, better known to the world as Madam C.J. Walker, came to symbolize all that black hair stood for in the first half of the 20th century. An avenue to success and respectability, black nationalism and expression, controversy, and heated debate, black hair unleashed its power on an unsuspecting world the new negro 1900 through 1920 it was a new year a new century and there was a new negro blacks in america had survived and survived enslavement a civil war and emancipation that left them economically and politically at a crippling disadvantage compared with whites yet the twentieth century was the first time that blacks were collectively a free people able to exercise more than minimal control over their lives and destinies, abate in a racist society. It was a time of promise and progress, as well as one of hard work and the reconfiguring of many ideas, norms, and ideologies. Blacks, no longer distinguished as free or slave, began the century by shaping their collective identity. And the politics of appearance was to play a pivotal role. Hot Comb by Natasha Trethewey
0: Halfway through an afternoon of Coca-Cola bottles sweating rings on veneered tabletops and the steel drone of window fans above the silence in each darkened room, I open a stiff drawer and find the old hot combs, black with grease, the teeth still pungent as burning hair, one is small, fine-toothed as if for a child. Holding it, I think of my mother's slender wrist, the curve of her neck as she leaned over the stove, her eyes shut as she pulled the wooden handle and laid flat the wisps at her temples. The heat in our kitchen made her glow that morning. I watched her wincing, the hot comb singeing her brow, sweat glistening above her lips. Her face made strangely beautiful, as only suffering can do. No, I'm gonna go to this one now. <laughs> this is kind of funny, and some of y'all back there might remember some of these that I'm about to read. It's a slick history of hair grease. From palm oil and shea butter to hog lard, chicken fat, Dax. I know some of y'all use Dax, don't front. <laughs> New Nile, Brilliantine, Royal Crown, Dixie Peach, Apex, Sulfur 8, Sulfur 8. <laughs> Alberto VO5, Vita Point, Posner Bergamot, Lustrous Silk, Ultra Sheen. Ultra Who got Sheen? the Ultra you Sheen? Ultra Sheen.
1: <laughs> <Hold on. laughs> That's it. It's used, Trust hot
0: six oil, jojoba, and carrot oil.
1: All right. In 1900, educator and businessman Booker T. Washington edited a volume entitled A New Negro for a New Century in which he stated that the African American woman can prove to the world that a Negro woman, that Negro womanhood when properly treated and educated will burst forth into gems of pure brilliancy Unsurpassed by any other race, what did this face for the new race have to look like? In many ways, and not surprisingly, since the light-skinned black elite heavily influenced these ideas, the idealized black woman in many and many Eurocentric features, including hairstyles, according to Aliyah Bundles' biographer and great great granddaughter of Madame C.J. Walker, the ideal woman of the late 19th and early 20th century, had a great mass of hair, which she swept to the top of her head. For those women of any race that were unable to attain this look naturally, there was a thriving wig and hairpiece industry to assist them. So the dressing of one's hair should be a matter of deep concern, stated the popular beauty guide, a complete course in hair straightening and beauty culture. To no other race is this more important than the Negro woman. While black women's physical appearance symbolically represented more for the race, black men too dedicated significant amounts of time to hair care regimens. For the first time decades of 20th century, black men sought to slicken, straighten, and otherwise style their hair through the use of tonics and pomades. A 1911 advertisement in the black newspaper, The Age, asks, Have you had your hair straightened yet? Cold soap waves were a popular method for achieving the pronounced parts and sleek looks of the time. And these waves were achieved by washing the hair, not rinsing out all the soap, and wearing dew rags cloth rags tied over the head to produce pressurized wave patterns. Another popular straightening technique for men was to comb or brush large quantities of hair grease and water through the hair at night and then cover it up in do rags as they slept. Straightening our hair
0: by bell hooks. Incidentally, this is not a poem, but. (laughs) On Saturday mornings, we would gather in the kitchen to get our hair fixed. That is straightened. Smells of burning grease and hair mingled with the scent of our freshly washed bodies, with collard greens cooking on the stove, with fried fish. We did not go to the hairdressers. Mama fixed our hair. Six daughters. There was no way we could have afforded hairdressers. In those days, this process of straightening black women's hair with a hot comb was not connected, in my mind, with the effort to look white, to live out standards of beauty set by white supremacy. It was connected solely with rites of initiation into womanhood. To arrive at that point where one's hair could be straightened was to move from being perceived as a child, whose hair could be neatly combed and braided, to being almost a woman. It was this moment of transition my sisters and I longed for. Hair pressing was a ritual of black women's culture, of intimacy. It was an exclusive moment when black women, even those who did not know one another well, might meet at home or in the beauty parlor to talk with one another or to listen to the talk. It was as important a world as that of the male barbershop, mysterious, secret. It was a world where the images constructed as barriers between oneself and the world were briefly let go before they were made again. It was a moment of creativity, a moment of change. I wanted this change even though I had been told all my life that I was one of the lucky ones because I had been born with good hair, hair that was fine, almost straight, not good enough, but still good. Hair that had no nappy edges, no kitchen, that area close to the neck that the hot comb could not reach. This good hair meant nothing to me when it stood as a barrier to my entering this secret black woman world. I was overjoyed when Mama finally agreed that I could join the Saturday ritual, no longer looking on but patiently waiting my turn. I have written of this ritual. For each of us, getting our hair pressed is an important ritual. It is not a sign of our longing to be white. There are no white people in our intimate world. It is a sign of our desire to be women. It is a gesture that says we are approaching womanhood. Before we reach the appropriate age, we wear braids, plaits that are symbols of our innocence, youth, our childhood. Then we are comforted by the parting hands that comb and braid, comforted by the intimacy and bliss. There is a deeper intimacy in the kitchen on Saturdays when hair is pressed, when fish is fried, when sodas are passed around, when soul music drips over the talk. It is a time without men. It is a time when we work as women to meet each other's needs, to make each other feel good inside, a time of laughter and outrageous talk.
1: So, the birth of the black hair care boom. Promised 40 acres and a mule at emancipation, most African Americans entered the 20th century with considerably less. As the century progressed, the creation of a black consumer market an obvious outgrowth of a rising middle class was to have a major impact on the role of black hair and the significance attached to it. With disposable income, more blacks had the means to, per- to purchase cosmetics, namely bleaching creams and hair straightening products. With the attainment and use of these goods, they were able to work toward achieving the respecta- respectable look of the new Negro. Yet it is the stories of two hair care capitalists Annie Turnbow Malone and Madam C.J. Walker that best illustrate the way black hair was used to make money while simultaneously helping to build up the race. The story of these two women also illuminates a theme that will be seen throughout the modern history of black hair in America. The contradictions that seem to lie at the core of creating an industry that is pro-black while pushing an agenda of alternating or improving on black features by making them appear whiter. As a young woman, Malone was dissatisfied with the hair care remedies and styling techniques that were available, and she wanted to find a product that would make her hair more manageable at the time. When getting the hair, to, when getting the hair into new styles each day uh, posed a challenge, considering that even running water was a luxury for many blacks. This was before the permanent chemical straightener, A good jar of grease, the hot comb or the afro pick, were readily available and getting a comb through kinky curls was not always a simple thing to do. By 1900, Malone had developed a product that she claimed would make hair grow, calling it Wonderful Hair Grower. She began selling her new miracle cure door to door in the town of Lovejoy, Illinois. Its immediate success marked the beginning of Malone's entrance into the hair care industry, and she soon expanded her product line. This
0: one makes me laugh. Love Potions 1 through 4, collected by Constance Johnson. Ain't no reason to be lonely when you can draw a man right to you with these tried and true love drawing spells. They come from the same folks who worked High John the Conqueror and invented seven varieties of mojo. One, take a strand of his hair and put it in the Bible. After five days, take it out and put it in a perfume bottle. He will fall madly in love with you. Now, after you get him, don't do nothing silly like taking the hair out of the perfume bottle. (laughs) Two, take two strands of hair from the man you be wanting, and place each hair in the heel of each of your shoes. Now wear them for nine days. The hair will continue to grow, and just as it do, so will his love for you. Three, (laughs) love relations been going poor lately? Take a pair of his old shoes and put some of your hair in them and wear them. That will bring him back to you. (laughs) Remember now, the spell only lasts if you continue to wear the shoes. Take away the shoes or the hair from the shoes. He going to leave you again, so be careful. (laughs) Four. This one is a little trickier. Trickier it require that you know someone that got a mole on their head (laughs) and the mole gotta have hair growing out of it. (laughs) Now what you do is take some graveyard dirt and mix it with some hair from the mole. Now put it all in a little sack and carry it in your pocket. This is also a good luck charm. Adding a diamond with the graveyard dirt and a lock of hair From a woman, if you're intended as a woman, the opposite if your love object is a man. This will also make the other person want you.
1: (laughs) How can I top that? (laughs) So with the success of the Walker system and the subsequent growth of Walker manufacturing, Madam C.J. Walker moved into the ranks of the Negro elite. At a time when the average uneducated black woman made less than $10 a week. Walker built herself a $250,000, 34-room mansion on the Hudson River, owned four automobiles, including an electric coupe and two other homes, a frequent donor to various charities, including the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People in Walker also erected a community center for the black residents of Indianapolis. So, don't remove the kinks from your hair, and remove them from your brain. The pages of black newspapers during this time were full of letters and editorials on the hair-straightening controversy. The black news journal Crusader weighed in by featuring women wearing traditional African African hair arrangements on its cover. For a short time around World War I, the bald look was in vogue, popularized by African-American boxer Jack Johnson, and as previously noted, some men were experiencing with processes or conch styles, yet overwhelmingly the look was either a shortcut or a slicked back, straightened style. Women's magazines such as A Half Century dedicated pages to telling their readers how to best care for their hair. Basic styles for women were based on crokinole curl, in which curlers called crokinoles are used to curl the hair tightly. That was combed into waves or page boy, in which longer hair is straightened and then curled under at the ends. Short hair was pressed and then put into tight curls and were combed out. And the hairpiece industry had been, a thrive, been thriving once since the 1800s. At the turn of the century, when piling masses of hair on top of the head was in vogue, black and white women bought switches. When the flapper, the flapper look was popularized popular, popularized in the 20s, shortcuts came uh, into fashion. This was a welcome relief according to half century magazine for the women who had burned off and pulled out so much of their hair in the last few years some women had even uh, whose own hair had even grown to the lengths that past looks demanded eagerly adopted the shortcuts others who had invested precious time and money into growing their hair long bought switches and wigs to simulate the short flapper cut
0: Homage to My Hair by Lucille Clifton. When I jump up and dance, I hear the music. My God, I'm talking about my nappy hair. She is a challenge to your hand, black man. She is as tasty on your tongue as good greens, black man. She can touch your mind with her electric fingers, and the grayer she do get, good God, the blacker she do be.
1: So the black power movement had gained a substantial following and even larger number of uh, sympathizers by 1969. One year earlier in a speech that launched a cultural revolution, Stokely Carmichael invoked the words black power. For lack of any other cohesive nationalist movement, all things that fell under the general heading of black pride came to be attributed by the media, white America and other blacks to the work of the organization called the Black Panthers. So while the Panthers were actually more concerned with Head Start programs and challenging legal injustices, there was a growing legion of primarily young black Americans, who were throwing their hair in emulation of the Panthers and as a declaration of their racial pride. The ideological shifts signaled by the Afro were not solely about loving a black aesthetic. It was just a look early on. It was a It was a lot more political and there was some expectation toward your behavior, particularly your behavior toward other black people, women, your brother, stresses Rochelle Nichols-Solomon, Philadelphia education reformer and founding member of the community group Sisters Remember Malcolm.
0: Don't Even Pretend, the Saturn poem by Peter Harris. Saturn's rings was all nappy, spread out from her head like she just woke up, took a shower, and ain't dried them yet. Dreadlocks cluttered with moons, meteors, mysteries. So God, she said, girl, now you know I can't let you be orbiting around me looking like that. Suppose we have company, what they gonna think of me? God took off from work, unscrewed her afro-sheen jar, washed her comb and pick, sat under constellations, and told Saturn to sit on the space between her legs. Honey, I got to plait your rings, even if I miss a day's pay. So God got to cornrowing Saturn's rings. Ain't nothing more coaxing than God's hands spreading each ring into three strands, sifting through rocks that was world's eons ago. She finger afro-sheen down the part, softening scalp, loosening crusty moon stuck in orbit. She start humming Nina Simone while threading wisdom down each row. Here comes the sun, little darling. Here comes the sun. Hands so knowing, they tug, twist, twirl those knotty rings, and Saturn don't whine, just listen to the lyrics and feel tight lightness creeping along her scalp. Down her back into infinity. Saturn closed her eyes and feel peaceful. Like when God rubbed her palms for the sixth time and rolled rings from the swirls in the fingerprints of each hand. Here comes the sun, little darling. Here comes the sun. I'm not going on American Idol, don't y'all <laughs> worry. God weed bright beads, baubles and shells, yellow curves, purple swoops, blue loops, Decorate the arc spreading now, like the stiff necklaces around the throats of Maasai sisters. There, child, I'm finished. My, my, you look like a magic pinwheel gracing space. Here, look in my corona and see how pretty you are. God hum and sigh, she got to rest these few more hours, work again tomorrow. Smiling early from the east, glinting off Saturn's rings like a fawn darting quenched from a waterhole back into the forest.
1: The Growing Politics of Hair, 1971 to 1979. In March 1971, the one-year-old black women's magazine's essence hit the newsstands with its first-ever cover model with long, straight hair. Its past issues had all featured afro or Corn Road, cover subjects. The model's name was Lauren Walker, and she was not a professional model, but instead a new breed, one of the many up-and-coming business-minded women of the future. Walker's professed business-mindedness in a youth and popular culture that had just recently invested the bulk of its interest in revolution, in revolution was as startling as her hairstyle. But by 1971, the black power movement was losing momentum. And black hair's natural reign was undergoing a change. The afro had become a hairstyle, plain and simple. It was no longer a matter of what your fro stood for, but how high your fro stood. Afros were everywhere, and they were increasingly unconnected to black power. Younger adults who were coming of age after the civil rights movement began wearing the style and emulation of celebrities like Jimi Hendrix rather than activists like Angela Davis. The Jackson Five, a group, a group few would argue were pushing any type of subversive political agenda, had mile-high froze. Diana Ross, the epitome of mainstream appeal, even sported a short bush. So white people now used to, used to the style that had shocked them just a few short years before were beginning to co-opt it. And blacks now used to the style and increasingly forgetful of its ideological meanings were like whites, reinterpreting it simply as a hairstyle that could be worn today and gone tomorrow. White America became more at ease with the sight of a large Afro at roughly the same time that the black power movement was losing most of its steam. Internal dissonance caused or exacerbated by government sabotage was well as trumped up criminal charges and government-endorsed acts of terrorism led by the Black Panthers and similar militant groups to fall apart. Many who had been part of the black power movement abandoned it. The cause died, notes Stephanie Williams, a former Panther sympathizer whose own Afro who had, had been inspired by H. Rapp Brown. The Afro became a fashion statement. So now there's big money in black hair, 1900 to 1950. The turn of the century ushered in the birth of a black Middle class with cash to spend. As blacks migrated into the cities, both black and white entrepreneurs created goods and services to exploit this growing market. Black men and women were finally provided with commercial hair products instead of having to rely on homemade and often ineffectual concoctions. These products, however, were mostly tins of grease and magic potions proportioned to turn short, kinky hair into long, straight, shiny locks. At the beginning of the century, most manufacturers of these products were white and did not succeed in turning a great profit, mainly because the products were both marketed ineffectively and never lived up to their hyperbolic claims. But things changed rather quickly, and black people rolled up their sleeves and once again reclaimed their hair industry. But this time, it was their own hair that caused profits to, sto- to soar. So politically incorrect, black, ha- black hair's new attitude, 1980 through 1994. What Farrah Fawcett did for the cascading mane, Bo Derek is do- doing for braids. Newsweek magazine proclaimed in 1980. Ironically, the era that began with blacks exploring a new visual aesthetic of natural nappy hair and African-inspired styles ended with a white woman being championed by the mainstream as the embodiment of beauty for wearing one such look. In 1979, Bo Derrick made the movie Ten, and in it she wore her hair in cornrows with beads on the end, the same style that Cicely Tyson had worn more than a decade earlier. By 1980, on the pages of Time and Newsweek, and in the lexicon of the population at large, cornrows had come to be known as bow braids. Even though Those mainstream publications that took the time to note the African roots of the style seldom included photos of black women wearing them. So some like to point to Bo Derek as an example of America's embracing a multicultural, more inclusive beauty ideal. The response response was (laughs) not favorable on all fronts, however. The African-American community, and black women in particular, saw it as an adding insult to injury. I saw danger in Bo Derek, remembers Miss Magazine's Marsha Gillespie. What, of, what offended me was that it was bad enough that they were going to tell me that she was the most beautiful woman in the world, but then to put her in cornrows as if to cover all of the bases. So under attack in the braids in the workplace, while white women were getting braids for prices way below market value from, from black women on the beaches of Caribbean islands or paying big bucks at expensive salons around the United States, black women began making headlines of their own over braided styles. However, the reasons and in their implications <coughs> were although altogether different. In 1981, Renee Rogers, a ticket agent for American Airlines, was fired for wearing cornrows, and she filed a discrimination suit that eventually went to the federal courts. Judge Abraham D. Sofar, the Federal District Court of New York, rejected her argument that the style evoked her African heritage, observing that she adopted the style shortly after the release of the film Ten. Following Rogers' case, African-American women continue to be reprimanded or dismissed from work over their decision to wear cornrows and braids. Other employers who prohibited braids in general or cornrows in particular included the Atlanta Urban League, Howard University Hospital, uh, American Airlines, the director of corporate relations at the time, said that the braids were inconsistent with the airline's business-like clean, free, fresh image, and the Metropolitan Police Department in Washington, D.C. In June of 1987, a string of cases involved the issue issue began bringing national attention and even gaining the support of some unlikely allies. In 1987, Pamela Walker, a full-time teacher and doctoral student in the University of Illinois at Chicago, who worked part-time at the Chicago uh, Regency Hyatt was fired when she arrived at work with Corn Rose. After Walker filed a complaint in the Equal uh, Employment Opportunity Commission, the hotel offered to reinstate her. Six months later, in January 1988, the Marriott Hotel in downtown Washington, D.C., sent home part-time employee Pamela Mitchell because of her extreme Corn Road hairstyle. The 25-year-old who filed a complaint with the District of Columbia... Thank you. Columbia's Office of Human Rights gained national attention and even appeared on CBS this morning to d- discuss her situation. On the show, Mitchell said that her employer had a discriminatory, was her employer had a discriminatory as well as a fashion problem. The case grabbed the attention of the media as well as the support of Jesse Jackson when a candidate for the de- Democratic presidential nomination and actress and formal, former braid wearer, Bo Derek. The Marriott Hotel reviewed the case and welcomed Mitchell back to her position, having decided that her style was acceptable. The hotel maintained, however, that even though Mitchell's hair was neat and, unad- uh, hair was neat and unadorned, other cases involving other kinds of cornrows might not be acceptable. So I'm going to stop right there and I would like to really Thank you all for coming. Um, this book, I think in this book, really inspired the culture, and it tells a significant and unique story through the culture um, and history of hair. So thank you very much.
0: And if I could add one thing, I spent the weekend in Washington, DC, and it is hard to find hairstyle that is not dreadlocks. Everybody yeah. you see on the street, men and women, both are wearing locks, braids, all sorts of things. It's hard to find people who don't have that. So wow. I think it's yeah. really interesting. It, is. it really is.
1: Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thanks to all of you for coming. Yes. yes.